Good morning. It is good to be ensembled today. I'm excited about that. It doesn't matter if Gabby mispronounces anything. It still sounds charming. I, I'm so jealous by that. At any rate, it's good to see you. She mentioned that we're in week two of this series we've launched into through the book of James. And we're calling these eight weeks Wisdom to Live By. And the idea that James is tackling here is that God has offered us a new way of living, a whole new way of approaching life and reality. And James wants his readers and he wants us to embrace this new way of life, to live and dive into it fully, to live as servants of the Lord Jesus, to become mature in living not just for this world, but for all of eternity to become mature and lacking nothing, he says. Last week, James told us this. He said, if any of you lacks wisdom, and wisdom, again, is deep, rich understanding that gives us the ability to not just know something in our minds, but to also apply it to our lives. If any of you lacks wisdom, the wisdom you need to live this Jesus life that's offered, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In other words, God wants you to have and experience this life. And in our section today, as we get into the second half of chapter 1, James is going to answer three questions for us. Three questions for us about this mature, complete, life-following Christ. He's going to say, what does it look like? He's going to give us a little glimpse of what it looks like to be people experiencing this life that Christ has come to offer. What does it look like? Two, where do we find the strength? Where do we find the power and the ability to live as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we tap into that which will help us? And then finally, who is it for? Who specifically will benefit? Who will God turn our attention to as we step into this gospel life with Jesus Christ? So that's our, our map. What does it look like? Where do we find the strength and who is it for? Question one. What does it look like? Here's how James begins our section today. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. One of the things I love about James is that he's nothing if he's not practical. And right away here, he is very practical for us this morning. He says, here's what wise living looks like. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. One quick and two slows. Have you ever known someone that you'd like to give this advice to? Is someone coming to mind right now that you're thinking of texting this verse to later? Some of you know that I recently traveled to Nigeria, Africa, which is a really, really long trip um, with Pastor Carl, who was pastor here for 26 years before I showed up. And about halfway there, Carl was telling me about traveling all over the world. And I was, he does this a lot. And so I was asking him, like, who are the other people you've traveled with? And he was sharing with me about the various people that he's traveled around the world with. And then at one point, he mentioned this one guy in particular that would just talk continuously. And Carl is very gracious. He's a kind, kind person. He's here this morning. Hi, Carl. Anyway, um... <laughs> But he said, you know, this one guy I traveled with, he would just talk and talk and talk, and he would always fill the space with talking. And he said, at one point, I just had to say to him, I need you to stop talking now. 
And I was trying to imagine that moment, Carl looking at him and saying, I need you to stop talking now. And as Carl was sharing this story with me, I was starting to think, well, okay, this story is being shared. So either A, Carl's implying Dave, it is so great to travel with you because you don't talk this much. Or Carl was saying, Dave, this is just kind of a hint. And if at some point you don't start talking less, then you will hear these words from me as well. I need you to stop talking now. I think it was A. I'm hoping it was A. But from that point forward, I tried to manage my tongue a little better. Have you ever been around someone where you just wanted to say, I need you to stop talking now? Most of us have. And sometimes, for some of us, we have been on the other side of that statement. We have been the talker. We've not been slow to speak. We've been quick to speak. Anybody here ever speak too quickly and then regret it? Is that like the universal experience of every single human or what? Ever been in a situation where you said something and then afterwards, either right away, like instantly, or later on as you reflected back, you thought, oh, why in the world did I open my mouth and say that insensitive or harsh or inappropriate or deceptive or gossipy or sarcastic or self-promotional or egotistical or false thing? Why did I lie? Why, why did I flatter? Why did I do it? What was I thinking? Mass confession here. Has anyone ever spoken too quickly and then regretted it later on? Yeah. Now, let me flip to the other side of the equation and ask you this. How often do you find yourself listening too quickly and then regretting it later? I mean, do you ever, even in a rash moment with your spouse or parents or kid or friends, say, you know, I'm going to really dial in and pay attention, not to, what, not to just what this person is saying, but to what's really driving what they're saying, to what they're feeling, to what's underneath the surface. And then later on, you find yourself saying, why did I do that? Why was I so patient, so empathetic? Why did I listen so intentionally? What a terrible decision. How often do you feel that way? You don't very often, do you? Because listening isn't often something that we regret, not too often. A number of months ago, uh, Liz Byrne uh, was doing a training for our staff on prayer, and on, specifically on praying with others. And it's kind of a funny thing to think about pastor, pastors being trained on praying with others, and yet all of us need help. And so she was talking to us, and she said, the first step to being a good prayer is being a good listener. First and foremost, listening to the Holy Spirit, but also listening to the person that you are talking to. And here was the tip. Here's the tip she gave. And I thought this was genius. So simple and yet so significant. When a person shares something with you, when they're talking to you and they're telling you something, specifically in this case what they want prayer for, when they're done sharing, as soon as they're done talking, instead of just jumping right in and then you talking and then you, you know, praying or adding your two cents, the tip was this, wait, just pause for a few seconds, give them a chance to see if there's actually more that they need to say, just do a slow count to three in your mind, and you know, ever since that moment I've been trying to do this more and more in just normal conversation, and here's what I found, 
people not only have more to say, but the best stuff, the, the most important and significant stuff they have to say, often comes in round two. If you just stop, if you're just slow to speak, if you just take a few seconds and listen a little more. But you know, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we live in a world right now where a lot of people are talking. A lot of people are voicing opinions and sharing perspectives and getting angry. But there's not a lot of listening. You know, if James was writing to the church in our day, he might say, even on social media, even when you're sitting in front of your computer or when you're typing away you know, viciously with your thumbs on your phone, be quick to listen, slow to tweet, slow to become angry. See, James' advice is so real for us today in our world. And friends, it's made me wonder, what if the church... What if followers of Jesus were not just known for having opinions, but for being people who listen? See, our mission as a church is becoming like Jesus and making Him known. So let me ask you this. Was Jesus more of a talker or a listener? That's an interesting question, isn't it? You haven't really thought about it before, I'm guessing. Was Jesus more of a talker or a listener? Let's tackle the question this way. I'll ask it another way. In the Bible, how many questions do you think Jesus asked? I mean, really, really fast. Just do this. If you don't mind, turn quickly to the person next to you and just take a guess. Just guess. In the Bible, how many questions do you think Jesus asked? Five seconds. Ready? Go. It's like a 50-50 raffle based on who gets the closest. Although you gave, you know, you didn't put any money in, so it's a prize of zero. There's a book out right now called The Questions Jesus, no, Jesus is the Question. The 307 Questions Jesus Asked. 307. You see, sometimes we think of Jesus as the answer man. The guy who came to give us all the answers, who had all the answers, who just wanted to talk and talk and talk and share all the answers. But in many ways, he wasn't the answer man, he was the question man. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you so afraid? Do you believe that I am able to do this? What good will it be for a man or woman if they gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Why did you doubt? Why do you call me good? Where is your faith? What is your name? Who touched me? Do you love me? He asked that one to Peter three times. Do you love me? You see, Jesus asked questions because he understood the power of listening. Here's a good question. Why is it I talk so much? Is it because I'm anxious? Is it because I have this need to be the center of attention? Is it because I have to try and control other people or I have to let people know how smart I am? 
You see, being quick to listen and slow to speak is hard for a lot of us because when I listen to somebody, I'm putting aside my own agenda. I'm setting aside the chance to show people how much I know. I'm laying down all the things I could do to try and get my way or manage other people's impressions of me. And for those few moments, those listening moments, I'm putting that other person first. I'm putting them before me. Listening is an act of servanthood. Listening is an act of humility. And that's why James adds, be slow to become angry. Notice he doesn't say don't get angry. There are a lot of good reasons for anger. There are things in this world that anger God and that he wants to anger us. But in this context, James is talking about moments when there is disagreement with others, when people don't see things the way you see things. And so he says, in those moments, don't be quick to talk and force your opinion and get angry with those who have a different perspective. You see, on a deeper level, James is saying, Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry is the mark of a person who isn't arrogant or conceited or vain or proud or marked by moral filth. But instead they are a person who's humble. They're marked by humility and that humility comes out and their willingness to stop and pause and listen and control their temper. What does a life lived for God looks like? look like? It looks like humility. It looks like someone who stops, listens, filters, and isn't so convinced of their own superiority that they spout off at the mouth and fly off the handle. This is what he says in verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Get rid of all that pride and arrogance and conceit. And the evil that is so prevalent and humbly, and he says, get rid of the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. He says, trade it all in for a posture of humility. And that brings us to question two. Where? Where do we find the strength to become these humble, listening, patient people? And the answer is clear. Right in this passage, James just hammers it. The word of God. When the word gets planted in you, when the word is allowed to shape your mind and heart and attitudes, then you become humble. Then you become a person who listens. Listen to how James says it. This is genius stuff. Top-notch writing. We should not be surprised it's the Bible. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This is great stuff. It's kind of like comedy. James uses this mirror analogy to set up this routine and he's saying this. He's saying, you get up in the morning and it's time to get ready to go to school or to go to work or out with your friends and you look in the mirror and the mirror don't lie. There are some things that need adjusting. You got some bed heads, some morning breath, some crusty eyes, maybe a pimple has suddenly emerged overnight, or if you're past that phase of life, maybe you've got some ear hair or crazy eyebrows that need attention, just saying. (laughs) Whatever it is, the mirror reveals that there are some things that need some work. 
James says, the Bible is like a mirror for your soul. If you look into it, it will reveal some things that need adjusting. Thoughts, attitudes, feelings, behaviors that need to be revised. And James says, if you don't allow the scriptures to change you, then you're like a person who gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror, and then goes off to school or work with bedhead, bad breath, and sleepy seeds seeds still stuck in the corners of your eyes. Don't do that, James says. No one likes that. They don't appreciate it, even at church. Don't just take glancing looks at the Bible and not let it change you, not let it deeply transform your life. And here's what we must understand Um, this is what James is calling for here. What he's calling for here is something that happens on a very significant level. He says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. He says, instead of just looking at yourself in the mirror and walking away and forgetting, he says, there's another option to look intently to let it change you, to act on what you see. Notice this phrase, looks intently. Those are super significant, very profound words. Those are the same words used to describe how Peter looked into the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. Peter goes to the tomb. He sees the stone rolled away. He looks in and notices the linens just laying there, collapsed, now void of Jesus' body. And we're told that Peter looks intently into the tomb. And James says, the same way that Peter looks at that empty tomb is the way we are to look at Scripture every day. Do you think Peter looked in at that empty tomb and said, you know, hmm, I'm not sure I can agree with that. I'm not sure I really like the messaging here. That's pretty tough. Do you think he looked in and said, wow, the tomb is empty, interesting, amazing, so cool. Well, I'm with my day. No. His mind is going crazy. He is going nuts. He was saying, if this is true, if in fact this really happened, the implications for my life are huge. Everything about who I am and what I do and how I think and how I live is going to change from this point forward because if that's the reality, then something in me is going to shift in a massive way. You see, James doesn't say, read the Bible, it's a good thing to do, you know? He doesn't say, you know, if you read the Bible, you'll pick up some good tips along the way. No, he says, look intently into the perfect law. Give the scriptures the authority to radically and completely change and shape and direct your life. The way you think and feel and act and live. Let it reorder every single priority on your priority list. And if you do, he says, if you do that, if you let the scriptures impact you on that level and in that way, then there will be an amazing result. What's the result he offers? What's the result he says will come? Freedom. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law, that gives freedom. Now, let me say a word here real quickly about this because we don't often associate law with freedom rules with freedom. We live in a world that I think has a skewed 
sense of freedom. And it's been skewed ever since the garden. You see, we often think freedom means this, the absence of restrictions. When I say freedom, that's what most of us think. That's how most of us picture freedom and, and, and define freedom. Just the absence of restrictions, the absence of boundaries or rules. You know, one thing I got to do while we were in Nigeria was drive. Not something I expected to do, but I got to do it because we were staying about 20 minutes away from the conference center every day. And so we had to drive to the conference center and then back from the conference center in the morning and then in the evening. And there were just enough of us that we needed two vehicles, but there was only one Nigerian driver. And so they asked for volunteers to drive. And since Carl didn't drive, I, ha- I mean, didn't volunteer, I had to volunteer to drive. And I have to say... Friends, the way we think of freedom is like, ni- is like driving in Nigeria. It's a beautifully wonderful thing. There are no speed limits. There are no lane lines. Plus, you have to dodge potholes and chickens and motorcycles that are everywhere. And did I mention that the car I was driving was a stick shift? It was like a dream come true. They have never seen an American drive as fast or as crazy as I drove. It was an awesome thing. I'm pretty sure that in all the experiences Carl's had all over the world in remote places, the scariest experience of his entire life is driving with me in Nigeria. Can I get an amen, Carl? There we go. (laughs) But that's how we think of freedom. No rules, no restrictions. I can do whatever I want to do. But there's another way to look at freedom. There's there's a biblical way to look at freedom. Here's how the Bible views freedom. Not you are free to do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be, but you are free when you can be who you were truly meant to be. I'll say that again. Not you are free when you can be whatever you want to be, But you are free when you can be who you were truly meant to be. You are free when you can fully realize your true self and your real nature. That's freedom according to the scriptures. Tim Keller gives a wonderful example of this. He says, it's kind of like a fish. A fish has gills. And and what gills do is they extract oxygen, not from the air like our lungs do, but from water. And a fish has fins, and fins do not propel you over land, but propel you within water. So the fish has water, and it has land. Where should the fish go? Well, if you define freedom as the absence of restrictions, then the answer is anywhere. Anywhere the fish wants. Well, if this fish is really free, you actually have to let the fish be on land as well as the water. And and, And the... Example says, okay, let's try this. Come on, fish. Let's experience your freedom. Let's just flop you up here onto this hot pavement. We'll give you an hour to just lie there and flap, and then we'll see how free you really feel at the end of the hour. See, that's freedom. There are no restrictions. But if you take the biblical view of freedom and apply it to the fish, if you say, here's a perfect law of freedom for you, fish, stay in the water. That's a restriction but it's a perfect restriction, it's the perfect law, then what happens? The fish swims like lightning. He darts everywhere. He has speed. He experiences vitality. Here's the point. Real freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's finding the right restrictions. You should write that down. If you are a student in this church, 
If you are still in school, write that down. Real freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It's finding the right restrictions. It's finding the restrictions that line up with your nature, with who you are, with how you were made. And James says those restrictions, you will find them in the word of God. For example, the Bible says, you must forgive. Why? Why do I have to forgive? You're taking away my freedom. Because God made you in his image and he forgives. And if you hold on to your grudge, it might feel good in the short run. But in the end, like a fish leaping up onto the hot pavement, that grudge will suffocate you. The Bible says don't lie. Why? Because it may feel freeing to bend the truth, but you are actually just creating for yourself a prison, a prison of deceit. And the truth, while sometimes more difficult, will put you in the water where you can breathe and swim without the weight and worry of a guilty conscience. The Bible says don't commit adultery. Be people who live with sexual purity. Why? Because it may feel free to express your sexuality however you want, but in the end, you were created to connect with one person in a deep, intimate, physical way. And in that, what you'll find is that you sidestep pain and hurt and agony, and you'll find freedom to be the person that God created you to be. Where do we find the strength to live humble lives for the gospel in the word of God that brings freedom? See, when we allow the word to change us and transform us and shape us, the power of that word helps us become who God longs for us to be and we experience freedom. All right, last question. Who is it for? In what relationships, most specifically, is our humility, our freedom, supposed to shine? Verses 26 and 27. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, at first glance, those verses seem to be kind of random kind of separated from one another. Keep a tight ring on your tongue, and oh, by the way, care for widows and orphans. But you have to see what James is saying here. Remember that command to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? James is saying it also applies. In fact, it applies most significantly to people like orphans and widows. The people, he's saying, I most want you to stop and pause and give attention to are not the people that everyone else is listening to. Not the rich, not the powerful, not the significant. You'll do that anyway. The world does that. But you, church, transformed by the word, listen to people who no one else is listening to. I was reading John Artberg this week, and he says, if we go back to verse 19, there's a word we probably missed, but in James' day, it would have been the most radical, subversive word of the entire passage. I'll read it again. We'll see if we catch it this time. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What's the radical word? 
everyone. Good job, Pastor Gabby. (laughs) You see, in the ancient world, they had a saying, as is the speech, so is the life. In other words, the more important you are, the more words you're allowed to use. That's the way the world worked. They were very clear about it. It was very overt. People in our day, and the social scientists who study this sort of thing, will tell you that it's true in our world as well, that there's a very close relationship in human society between power and words. The more power you have, the more words you tend to use. Winston Churchill, he was a pretty powerful guy, and if you know anything about him, you'll know that he talked a lot, and he expected to be allowed to talk a lot. And at dinner one time, there's a story of his son-in-law who was talking, and Churchill interrupted him. And then the son-in-law tried to jump back in, and Churchill's immediate response to his son-in-law right at the table was this, don't interrupt me while I'm interrupting. Don't interrupt my interrupting. He was just, he just assumed, right? His interpretation was that it was his prerogative to talk whenever he wanted to because why? He was a powerful guy. He was a significant person. His son-in-law wasn't. I can interrupt whenever I want to, but don't interrupt my interrupting, kid. You know what? We don't say it that explicitly in our world, but research shows the same thing. If you look at the research, they say things like, CEOs talk a lot. Rich people talk more than poor people. The popular kids in school grab more words than the other kids. Men tend to interrupt women a lot more than vice versa. See, I wonder what's behind all that. The reality still lives on today. Power and words live in relationship with one another. But in Rome, in the first century, in Greece, in the first century, it was very clear. Let the slave be slow to speak. Let the poor be slow to speak. Let the women be slow to speak. Let the peasant listen up. Let the rich and powerful use words a lot to enhance their honor and status. But James comes into the picture. He speaks into that very world world, and he says, not in the community of people who follow Jesus. And who are becoming like him. Not here. He says, for us, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a whole new way to live. There is a completely different set of values. By the way, this explains something about Jesus that's so significant, but you may have not noticed it before. It's something about Jesus in, during his trial when he's put on trial and then when he's crucified. Do you remember this scene? Time and time again, when Jesus is accused by the chief priests and the elders, he doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything, right? He doesn't speak. Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But it says, this is Matthew 27, Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Why? Why is he doing that? Why? Why is he not speaking? Why will he not defend himself? Why will he not use his words? You see, he's, he's just doing what he did his whole life. He's identifying with those who have been marginalized. 
with those who have no power, with the weak, with the poor, with those who have no voice. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Though in nature God, he became a servant. Remember that word? Not servant. He became a slave. He became the lowest of the low. He became a person who didn't have a voice. He's the word of God, but he became silent so there could be this new community. A community where rich Roman aristocrats were going to learn from slaves. Where men would ask questions and women would be free to answer. Where everyone, no matter who you are, would be counted worthy to be listened to and have a voice. That's the church. That's the people of Jesus Christ. And next week, James is going to take us even further into this radical Jesus-following society. The society that started to shape and influence and utterly change the world. And the message is so poignant, friends. I beg you, please do not miss it. It is so good for who we are and what we're living through in our day. But for today, I invite you to the table with this question. Are you allowing Jesus Christ to shape you into a humble person who listens to people, who listens to others in our world, the others that others don't listen to? Are you being transformed into a person of humility by the word of God that you're allowing to come intently into your soul? You see, friends, as we come to the table, we remember the one who became poor, who died the death of a slave, a servant, the lowly, that we might be accepted. And Jesus says, come, receive the free gift, and then go and live like me and offer that gift to the people of this world who need it most. So this morning when you're ready, come to the table and take the bread, and the cup. And remember how loved you are and how loving you are invited to be by the power of God at work in you. Father, this morning we thank you for the radical way in which you change things that are just not right. We thank you for the privilege of living lives of sacrifice. I thank you for the privilege of lowering ourselves because you lowered yourself for us. Remind us, Lord. Remind us, Lord, of the freedom and the blessing. When we choose to live for you, when we take your restrictions and we wrap them around our lives so that we can be who you created us to be. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much. And we pray it in your name. Amen.